Well, good morning, everybody. It is so good to see you all here this morning. And for those joining us online, a special welcome to you as always. I'm looking forward to opening God's Word in just a moment. I'm also looking forward to sharing communion with you all today. We'll talk more about communion later on in our service. Uh, Right now, I'm going to invite all of you to turn in your Bibles to, to, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And I'll give you a minute to turn that. I encourage you all to turn in your Bibles there. This is a letter written by Paul to his spiritual son, Timothy, the second of two letters that we see in the Bible. 2 Timothy chapter 3, I'll read to you verse 16. Paul writes this, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, just keep your place there in 2 Timothy because we'll come back to it in just a minute. But I want to pause right now and let you know the title of this morning's message. The title is this, Good Students of God's Word. That's our title, that's our hope, that's our goal, to be good students of God's Word. And I'm excited to kick off this new series that'll take us all the way to the end of this year. And we're going to be studying the various genres or categories of the book's of the Bible in order to help us better understand God's Word. You see, our understanding of God's Word and ultimately our response to God's Word hinges on how well we are able to interpret God's Word. And so in the weeks to come, we're going to be looking at a variety of categories or genres that make up the book's of the Bible. These genres include the Old Testament narratives, also the law, Psalms, wisdom literature, the prophets, the gospels, parables, the book of Acts, the epistles. Epistles is another word for letters. And finally, the Revelation. Now, we're not going to necessarily cover them in that specific order, but throughout the course of the next several weeks, we're going to look closely at each of these genres. And we're going to unpack a variety of verses so that we can learn to become good students of God's Word. And by the way, in a couple of weeks, we'll devote an entire message on the important subject of Bible translations. So that's coming in just a couple of weeks. Today, our goal is to lay a solid base, a firm foundation, because I know you all want to be good students of God's Word. Whether you are brand new to the Bible, or maybe you have years of experience studying the Bible. It's okay. No matter where you see yourself on that spectrum, we all want to be good students of God's Word. I trust that. We all want to be good students. And so that is what this series is all about. And by the way, throughout the course of this series, we'll refer to some helpful resources. Here's one helpful resource that uh, 
is, I think, a wonderful resource to have on your shelf or digital shelf. It's called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. It's a wonderful book. It provides a great foundation for anybody who would like to study God's Word. And so we'll refer to resources like this throughout the course of this series. But a minute ago, we read that all Scripture is breathed out by God. And it's important to know, what did Paul mean when he said all Scripture is breathed out by God? The 66 books that make up the Bible, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, these are not simply books written by human beings to give us their opinions or advice about life. The Bible is inspired work. The Holy Spirit directed these authors to communicate the very breath of God. All Scripture is breathed out by God. And I imagine, and again, I hope, that every follower of Jesus Christ would like to know God's will and to obey God's will. We don't always get it right, but hopefully that's our desire, to know God's will and to do God's will. And in order to do the will of God, we need to know the will of God. And the primary way that we get to know the will of God is through His Word. You see, God has given us His Word to reveal to us all that we need to know about Him. That's why it's important to study God's Word. So we just read 2 Timothy 3.16. I want you to turn back one chapter to 2 Timothy 2 and look at verse 15. 2 Timothy 2, verse 15. And Paul writes this, again, to his spiritual son, Timothy. He says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Timothy was blessed. He was blessed because he was taught the word of God by his mother, Eunice. Timothy was blessed because he was taught the word of God by his grandmother, Lois. Timothy was blessed because he was mentored by Paul himself. And not only mentored by Paul, he was invited by Paul to partner with him in ministry. So if anybody had the knowledge of God's word, it was Timothy. His mom, his grandmother, his mentor poured into Timothy. And even still, Paul says to Timothy, do your best to present yourself approved to God. You see, it would have been easy for Timothy to put it in cruise control because he, had, he already had so much knowledge of God's word. Cruise control is a nice thing in a car, right? In long stretches. In our recent trip up to Canada, during one stretch of the trip, we took a road trip in our rental minivan. And so we took this road trip. If you're on the west coast of Canada and you want to travel to Alberta toward the east, right in the middle, that's like an 11, 12-hour drive all the way to Alberta. 
That's many hours on long stretches. And so we used cruise control quite a bit, okay? And so it was great because, you know, when your foot is on the pedal nonstop, it's fatiguing. It's tiring driving. So sometimes when I'd be driving, I'd put it in cruise. I'd take my foot off the gas. I'd kind of do some stretches in the car, you know, just kind of go back and forth. Okay, don't try that in your car, okay? Stay alert. But it was helpful to relax, to take the foot off the pedal. In the spiritual life, the tendency and the temptation is to put it in cruise control and just relax. But studying God's Word takes so much work. Maybe you've caught yourself thinking something along the lines of this. Well, you know, that Bible memory thing, I did that as a kid. I've graduated from that. I don't need to memorize verses anymore. Or how about this? Uh, today, I'll just kind of skim through this passage, right? Anyway, it's just a long list of names I can't pronounce. So I'll just kind of skim through it and then check it off as another daily devotional done. Sometimes it's easy to actually read a portion of Scripture mindlessly. Have you ever caught yourself reading the Bible and going, wait a minute, what did I just read? And so it takes work. It takes discipline and diligence to become good students of God's Word. None of us was born naturally smart, okay? It takes a lot of work to be good students. It takes discipline to rightly handle the word of truth. We read that term in that verse, rightly handle. The Greek word translated rightly handle, it's the word orthotamunta. Now that's a big word. It's a long word. But it's an important word to understand what Paul meant here in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Let's break up this word into two to help us better understand God's intent with this word. Orthotamunta. The first part is ortho. Ortho means right or proper. We know that word, right? Orthodox. Orthotics. Orthomatrous. Proper. Right. To be ortho is to be proper and right. Tamunta means to cut. And so to correctly handle the word of God is to cut it properly. This is actually a farming term. You see, a farmer plowing a field seeks to cut straight furrows. Where we live, out in the flatlands, there's a lot of open space, which means there's a lot of cornfields where we live. A lot of cornfields. And when I drive by these cornfields, I'll tell you, they are meticulously straight. They are so perfect. I can look down and see the end of the field. And that's because farmers, when they set out to cut furrows, here's what they don't do. They don't wake up and think, you know what? I'm just going to go by feel. I'm just going to start plowing and see where it goes. 
So they don't end up with an S, okay? You never see an S in a cornfield. You only see an L, a lowercase L, a straight line. That's because farmers, here's what they do. When they plow furrows, they fix their eyes on a point at the end of the field. And they head directly for that point, and they do not deviate. They do not get sidetracked. In order to do the will of God, we must first understand the Word of God. And we need to understand what He's communicating to us without allowing ourselves to deviate or to interject our own opinions or our own biases. You know, by the way, can I tell you this? In the Bible, there is no book called Second Opinions. Okay? You will not see a book entitled Second Opinion, so don't look for it. And yet all too often, we have this tendency to allow our opinions and our biases to, me- to uh, cloud the meaning of God's Word. Throughout this series, I'm going to remind you of our goal as Bible students. We're all Bible students, okay? We're all Bible students. And the goal as Bible students is this, to get to the plain meaning of the text. That is your goal and mine. Every time we open the Word of God is to get to the plain meaning of the text. What did God intend? Now, we don't always get that right, and it's not always that easy. But that's our goal, so we can ultimately do what God wants us to do. Did you know that true Bible study is not a group of people gathered in a circle and then looking at a passage and then giving six or seven different interpretations of the passage and then everyone going, ooh, that's a good one. And yours, I like your interpretation too. And yours is good too. And yours, I like that. Ooh, I've never heard that one. That's a good one too. You get a prize, you get a prize, you get a prize. We're all winners. Okay? That is not true Bible study. There's only one meaning in the text. So there aren't seven or eight different meanings in the text. The Bible is not like a fiction novel where you can kind of just interpret freely however you'd like. So true Bible study is not sitting around and everyone give their own interpretation and everybody walk away feeling, oh, that was good. We're all winners. And I'll say this. True Bible study is not trying to find something in a passage that no one has ever discovered before. And sometimes that happens. We try to be uh, ingenious, try to one-up the next Bible student. Now, I'll say this. Throughout the course of your journey with God, you will come across a passage, and later on you might come across that same passage and your understanding that passage will be different. That's not because the Word of God has changed. It's because we have changed. And I'll tell you, in my life, there are passages that I thought said something years ago, only to discover, wow, I was wrong. So as we grow in our knowledge of God and His Word, we will change. God's Word never 
changes. His meaning never changes. The goal of good interpretation is simply to get to the plain meaning of the text. But in order to do this, we need good Bible interpreting skills. And that's what this series is all about. And again, so whether you are brand new to the Bible, if you are brand new, I'm so excited that you're here today. If you have many years and you have many theological degrees under your belt, I'm so glad you're here today because we can never stop learning about God's Word. To be a good student begins with this. It begins with proper exegesis. Proper exegesis. You're going to see this word, exegesis, mentioned time to time throughout this series. And the word exegesis means this. It's the careful study of Scripture to discover the original intended meaning. So our goal as good students is to be good at exegeting a passage. What you don't want to do in the next several weeks is to practice eisegesis. The term eisegesis means interpreting Scripture in such a way as to introduce one's own presuppositions or biases. Let's put it this way. Exegesis is drawing out from Scripture the intended meaning. Exit, right? Exit, out, to draw out. Eisegesis is to read in, to put in our own presuppositions, something that is not there in Scripture. And the reality is, even though we may not have a mindset of deliberate eisegesis, unintended eisegesis happens far too often when we read the Bible. That is why it is so important to start with the then and there, not the here and now. So memorize that phrase. Always start with the then and there when you open up God's Word, not the here and now. What I mean by that is we need to start with the proper context. If we start with our own experiences, our own culture, our own language, our own idea of words, then what happens is we can easily read inaccuracies into God's Word, and we don't want to do that. And by the way, this is a great time for me to remind us all that the Bible, in its original form, was not written in English. Okay. I know we chuckle. See, oftentimes we forget that. And we are influenced by the language and influenced by our own presuppositions. And so the Bible in its original form was not written in English or maybe in the language that your Bible might be in unless you're reading from the Hebrew Bible. 
Unless you have the Greek New Testament. If you do, wow, praise God. But for most of us here, we're reading a translation, which, by the way, is in and of itself a form of interpretation. That's why in two weeks we'll talk much about Bible translations and we'll compare a number of translations. That's in two weeks. For now, let's remember, always start with the then and there, not the here and now. We need to know what the original audience understood and why they received what they received before we can actually start applying it to the here and now. Did you know that God's Word was written long before we were born? Long before. And God's Word was written over a period of 1,500 years. We are not the original recipients. And certainly we are not the only recipients. God's Word, this amazing book, has lasted and will continue to go on from generation to generation to generation. That's why we need to know how to study it correctly, to rightly handle his word. You know, over the years, and can I even say maybe in particular, even in the last year and a half or so, I've seen Bible passages posted on social media by well-intentioned Christians, but taken completely out of their original context and claimed by Christians as promises specifically for them. And so we don't want to make the mistake of reading into Scripture something that is not there because we are influenced by this time and space our culture, the language of our Bible, and all of our presupposed ideas about God's Word. And that's, again, why we want to dig deep into His Word. So hopefully throughout the series, we'll be reminded that good interpretation always begins with proper exegesis, drawing out the intended meaning. And to help us understand what we're talking about, I'm going to take you to a passage that is often misapplied because readers don't start with the then and there. Now, there are many examples of misapplied verses today. I can name verse after verse after verse, but I want to bring you to one particular passage just to get us started. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3 and look at verse 20. Revelation 3, verse 20. Revelation is all the way at the end of the Bible. And I'll read to you verse 20 of chapter 3. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Keep your place here in Revelation 3 because we'll come back to this passage and we'll read a few more verses in a minute. This passage I just read, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. It's a passage that you might hear at a revival or a crusade or a youth rally. And 
Here's how you might hear it. It's often said during an invitation, and the picture is this. Jesus is standing at the door of an unbeliever's heart, knocking. And Jesus is ready to enter into the heart of an unbeliever and to bring salvation if that unbeliever lets him into his heart. That actually sounds pretty good. And in fact, my guess is many of us may have heard that. It's even possible that you've taught that. Now, again, the great thing is as Bible students, as we grow, there are times that we'll look back and say, wow, that was not right. And we've grown and learned from that. But this is a very familiar passage. One of the most familiar passages associated with an invitation to receive Jesus into your heart. But good exegesis, which includes knowing the context, it leads to the proper understanding that Jesus is not addressing unbelievers in verse 20. This verse is not about Jesus knocking at the door of an unbeliever and saying, I want to enter your heart. Jesus is addressing Christians and specifically an entire church. In the first few chapters of the book of Revelation, the author, John, records a message from Jesus to seven churches. These were actual churches that existed during John's day. And in Revelation 3, verses 14 to 22, Jesus addresses the church of Laodicea. Laodicea was an ancient city. You, could find, you would find it in what we know as modern-day Turkey. And that region was wealthy. Laodicea was a wealthy city. And so the church was in the midst of this wealthy city. And what happened was the church, the Christians within the church, they became so comfortable in this wealthy city that it led to self-reliance, self-sufficiency. If a problem arose, ah, don't worry, we'll take care of it. We don't need a handout. We got it. So what happened was their self-sufficiency ultimately led to something that we're going to talk about here in a second. But the picture was this. When John recorded what Jesus said in this vision. The picture that John painted was one that would have been very familiar to those early recipients. You see, because the picture is this. Jesus is standing at the door on the outside and knocking. And he wants to come in. And Jesus says, if he opens a door... I will come in and I will dine with him. In that culture, much like in many cultures today, hospitality was hugely important. It would have been an offense. It would have been an insult not to allow that person to come in for a meal. And so the picture is this. Jesus is standing at the door of his 
very church who was not inviting him in to enjoy fellowship with him because they were too busy being self-reliant, self-sufficient. And as a result, their self-reliance resulted in spiritual ineffectiveness. That is why Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Church, I want to fellowship with you. So that's the context here. They were being spiritually ineffective. They were being, well, lukewarm. In fact, let's go back up now and look at verses 15 and 16. Jesus says this to his church. He says in verses 15 and 16, I know your works. You were neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, these are some strong words from Jesus himself. He tells the church of Laodicea that because they are neither hot nor cold, I want to spit you out. Literally, I want to vomit you out of my mouth. Now, why would Jesus say that? Why such harsh rebuke? This is the only time in the entire New Testament that we see the word lukewarm. This passage here is often a misapplied passage, just like verse 20 is. So in this one passage alone, we have two misapplied verses by well-intentioned Christians today. And maybe you've heard me share this in the past, that uh, this passage here in verses 15 and 16, it's often used to describe a person who has one foot in the church and then one foot in the world, right? And Jesus is saying, get off the fence. Get off the fence. Don't be wishy-washy. Be hot. Be on fire. And oftentimes you might hear this at a, a youth rally or a youth camp, you know, oh, I want you to be on fire for God. Don't be lukewarm. Just make a choice. It'd be better if you were cold. And so the idea is this, that hot equals good, right? Be on fire. Oh, man, you're, you're, you're just hot. Okay, or cold. Cold equals bad, like the cold shoulder. So that's how oftentimes people read this passage. Be hot, be on fire for God. Just don't be lukewarm. Choose today. But that's a misunderstanding of this passage. We need to understand the original context in that original re region. You see, nearby, there was a city called Hierapolis. So if you had Laodicea as one city, nearby was a city called Hierapolis. And Hierapolis was known for having these hot mineral springs. You ever been to a hot springs? Pretty soothing, right? You just sweat a lot, right? But you feel better afterwards. It's healing, it's soothing. The problem is, they would try to uh, transport all this water, this hot spring water, from Hierapolis to Laodicea through these pipes. By the time the water got to Laodicea, it became lukewarm. And then there's another near nearby city called Colossae. Colossae was known for these really cold mountain spring waters. Refreshing. Again, they tried to transport those waters 
to Laodicea. But by the time those cold waters got to Laodicea, it became room temperature, lukewarm, ineffective. Here's Jesus' point. I'm going to illustrate it using something that I think we can all relate to. Okay. Let's say it's a hot summer day. You've been working in your yard. You've worked up a sweat. You're just dripping, and you don't smell all that great. Right? You've got that outside stinky smell. Okay? And so you go into your kitchen, and you're looking for some refreshing drink, and then you realize, oh, somebody left the lemonade on the counter. And now there's no ice in the freezer. So you pour yourself a tall glass of lukewarm lemonade. It doesn't refresh you. Likewise, let's say it's a cold, rainy night. You're shivering. You've come out of the cold, and you're just freezing. Your teeth are chattering, and you're hungry. So you go to the fridge, and you get this big bowl of chicken soup. But then you go to the microwave, and your microwave is broken. So you have to eat that chicken soup cold with all the hardened fat on top. <laughs> you get the picture. Yuck. You want to spit it out. The point is this. The church at Laodicea was providing neither healing like a hot bowl of chicken soup on a cold winter night, or refreshment like a nice cold glass of lemonade on a hot summer day. In other words, their spiritual pride led to spiritual ineffectiveness, spiritual apathy. They had become self-reliant, self-sufficient, and that self-reliance made them spiritually ineffective. And that is why Jesus says, Behold, church, I stand at your door and knock. Here's the application for us today. Because there's got to be some application, right, of God's word. Here is our application for E-Free Church in the 21st century, in the year 2021. May we never get to the point in our lives that we become self-reliant, individually and corporately as a church. Because the moment we do, we will become spiritually ineffective. Pride is a roadblock to spiritual ineffectiveness or spiritual effectiveness because pride causes us to focus on self. Pride will always cause us to focus on self. And the danger when we focus on ourselves, especially our own self-reliance, is that we then begin to measure others by those standards. Why can't they get their act together? Why can't they work hard? God helps those who help themselves. You see, self-sufficiency leads to pride, which ultimately leads to a judgmental and critical spirit. Humility, 
on the other hand, is like a tall, cold glass of lemonade or a hot bowl of chicken soup. You see, because humility always leads to spiritual effectiveness because humility always looks to the interests of others. It all boils down to that. Pride causes us to focus on self. Humility always focuses on the interests of others. That's God's desire for his church then and now. In church, in this time and space, we, E-Free Church, we have this incredible opportunity to model Christ to our neighbors, to our communities, to our nation, to our world. And as long as we focus on humility, we will never go wrong because we will model our lives after Jesus who came to earth, emptied himself, went to the cross, and died in our place. And right now, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, and he wants to fellowship with his church. He's saying, behold, I stand at the door and knock. He wants to be invited in to every gathering. He wants to fellowship with us. And today we're reminded, we're reminded that humility always leads to spiritual effectiveness.